Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's summer sale time. Uh, We're giving podcast listeners an amazing 50% off an annual subscription to New Scientist. It's really an incredible deal you get unlimited access to the whole New Scientist website for under £50 or under $50 if you're in the US. Go to newscientist.com slash pod50 to get this absolute bargain. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by Michael LePage in London and Carmela Padovich Callahan in New York. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Uh, On the show this week, uh, we're going to hear about a new project from BAFTA award-winning sound artist Chris Watson. Uh, You might have heard his work on David Attenborough documentaries. And uh, there's another story, and I want to stress that this is from a peer-reviewed journal. It's about monkeys using sex toys. Quite quite nervous about that one, to be honest. <laughs> um, we've also got a new study on the risks of human spaceflight to Mars and an extraordinary story about the attempt to simulate a brain by using giant atoms. Very cool. Uh, and speaking of cooling, uh, we're going to start with the horrendous drought being endured in Europe uh, this summer. Michael. Yes, so uh, here in southeast England, we've had a really hot summer with hardly any rain at all. The lawns have turned yellow, the trees are dropping their leaves in the middle of summer, ponds near me have all dried out and so on. Um, So last week, the government officially declared it a drought. But of course, it's not just England. In fact, there's drought across most of Europe. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. How bad is the drought Europe wide, Michael? Uh, So the various ways of measuring it, one is to look at river flows. So across Europe, that's including the UK and Ireland, uh, river flows are about a third lower than the summer average over the past 40 years. And in some places, they are two thirds lower. Uh, So that's that's pretty extreme. Uh, And in fact, there there are these things called hunger stones that have been exposed in some rivers. So these are stones that are carved with inscriptions that can only be seen when the water gets really low during exceptional droughts. And these inscriptions uh, warn of the consequences. They say things like, if you can see me, weep. It's really shocking. I saw some of the pictures you were sharing of those, Michael. Um, It almost feels sort of biblical plague like, doesn't it? Yes, well, it's looking like this is going to be the worst drought in Europe for 500 years. And of course, it's already having a serious impact on food production, on energy and transport, on wildlife and so on. Can we just get it out the way that um, if there are still people saying, oh, it's just like 1976, 
there was a drought then, just get on with it. Um, you know, that's just climate change denial, isn't it? Yes, I think the key point is this drought would not be as bad in a cooler world. In other words, global warming has made it worse. Uh, so we know that heat waves today are hotter because of fossil fuel driven warming. And Europe has had this series of really extreme heat waves this summer. And that, of course, means that water evaporates faster, plants use more water, and, and that makes the drought much worse. As for the lack of rainfall, it's harder to say if that specifically is due to warming, but some researchers think it could be linked. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how farmers are being hit and, uh, you know, many dairy farmers are having to feed their cows with the silage that they put aside for winter. Um, So God knows what they're going to do in winter. But what about crops? Do we have an idea of how badly yields are going to be affected? So it's hard to come up with a single number because the situation varies a lot depending on the specific crop, whether farmers use irrigation, how much irrigation water they've got left if they do and so on. And so with rice, there are some farmers in Italy are saying they expect to lose up to 60% of their crop and that, that's those are the worst figures I've seen. With most of the other crops, the forecasted drops in yields are much smaller, say 5 or 10%. But of course, this is happening at a time when there are already sort of uh, very high food prices, and those prices, of course, could go up even more if we, if we have those kinds of shortages. You also mentioned energy, Michael. So how does a drought affect energy generation? Is it through things like hydropower, I'm guessing? Yes, obviously, hydropower is very directly affected. Uh, if you've got lower water levels in rivers and dams, that means you can't generate as much power from them. And across Europe, uh, hydropowers are down by a fifth. And then there's some more unexpected things. So, for instance, a lot of nuclear plants use river water for cooling and several plants have had to lower their output. The problem is that if they discharge hot water when it's already very hot, they make the river so hot that it would kill all the wildlife. So they have to discharge less, less water. And then, of course, there's some just really simple things like a lot of coal and oil is still transported by barges along rivers like the Rhine. And those barges are having to carry much less than usual so they don't hit the river bottom. We did have some rain in London this afternoon. Did did anyone go and do the Shawshank Redemption thing outside <laughs> in the rain? I did. Um, when it rained a bit yesterday evening, I, I stuck my head out the door just, you know, to smell the rain. And yeah. I could hear people cheering all around. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. I, I went and stood outside as well. But I have to say, I've, I've been a little disappointed because where I am, we've still not had that much rain. Yeah, no, we do need a lot more, don't we? Absolutely. Some rain is better than none, but it's going to take a lot of rain to restore moisture to soils, mm. to refill the rivers, the dams and aquifers. And so these, even if we get some rain, these con- drought conditions could persist for a while yet, possibly even into next year. We're just going to have to wait and see. Now, I don't know if the life form of the week segment this week should perhaps come with a parental guidance advisory. Um <laughs> It's that story that Rowan mentioned about a population of monkeys in Bali, Indonesia, that seem to have figured out how to use stone tools as sex toys. To find out more, Rowan spoke to our Australia reporter, Alice Klein. Alice, okay, monkeys using sex toys. It's not the typical primate story we report on. Um, How did you find it? Well, look, it wasn't my original intention to write about monkey masturbation, Um, but Last week, I just happened to be reading one of my favorite scientific journals uh, called Ethology, which is all about different animal behavior. And I came across this paper that was titled, Do Monkeys Use Sex Toys? 
evidence of stone tool assisted masturbation in free ranging long tailed macaques. And I mean, how can you go past that? Yeah, I mean, well, they, they answer their own question, the title, don't they? Yeah, so it was this group of um, Canadian researchers and they were studying this group of about a 1,000 uh, long-tailed macaques that live in and around this sacred monkey forest sanctuary in central Bali. So the monkeys aren't captive, they can roam free, but they do get food um, in the sanctuary, so they sort of hover around that area. Anyway, so the researchers' original attention, intention was to study how these monkeys use stones for object play. But then things took a bit of an unexpected turn when they began noticing both males and females frequently rubbing or tapping stones on their own genitals. (laughs) And on multiple research trips that they did between 2016 and 2019, they took hundreds of videos of this behaviour. It wasn't just, you know, one or two examples. It was, Uh, yeah, it seemed very frequent. And um, the videos are really quite something to watch. Oh, um, I'd love to see the the grant applications for this, or like you know, when you meet people. Oh, what have you? What research are you doing? Uh, oh, yeah, I've been filming hundreds of videos of, of monkey <laughs> masturbation. Oh my god! Yes, indeed. Um, and we know it's, or they think it's for that the monkeys are doing it for sexual pleasure. Do they? Yeah, they they think that they are doing it for sexual pleasure um, for a few reasons. One is that when males do it, they get erections shortly after they start and they're more likely to do it in sexual contexts like when they're inspecting females' genitals. For females, obviously, it's a bit harder to tell if they're aroused um, Mm because they obviously don't get erections. But the researchers did notice that they tended to choose rougher, more angular stones to rub or tap their genitals and they thought this might be because they're more sexually stimulating. Well, so they do it, they don't, do they do it to each other? like a kind of foreplay or is it, um, you know, self-administered? It, it's all self-administered. Okay. And is this the first time that we've seen a, a species other than humans doing this kind of sex toy play? Well, there have been a handful of anecdotal reports of what is called in the scientific literature tool-assisted masturbation. So, for example, there was this male chimpanzee in Uganda that was observed a few years ago using a discarded plastic bottle to masturbate. And there was a video during the rounds a few years ago you might have seen of a dolphin uh, masturbating with a dead fish. But they've all been these sort of individual one-off things and this is the first time that it's been extensively documented in a non-human population. And so why why this particular population of macaques in Bali? Why them? Well, no one's sure exactly, but it seems like it might be due to a combination of factors. One reason might be that these macaques, um, as I was saying before, they get regular food handouts from sanctuary staff, so they don't have to spend any time going out and foraging for their own meals. (laughs) That means that, you know, maybe they've just got more time to relax and get creative with their masturbation repertoires. Um, (laughs) And then (laughs) they also spend time on the ground um, where there are obviously lots of stones at their disposal. They're not just monkeys that spend all their time in trees. So I guess they can put them to good use. So they're literally just lying around masturbating all day. (laughs) Well, apparently they do it in in a seated position, but um, yes. (laughs) And, you know, know, stupid question, but why are they doing it? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could ask the same for ourselves and all other species that masturbate, um, which Mm. I've discovered is it seems to be kind of everything. There's 
you know, other than monkeys, there's horses, lions, walruses, deer, rhinos, vampire bats, sheep, birds, <sighs> and even porcupines. And there are various theories to explain why it, it might be so common, like perhaps in males it helps to clear out low-quality sperm or something. Hmm. But that doesn't really make sense in the context of these Balinese macaques um, because the genital rubbing and tapping doesn't actually lead to ejaculation. Yeah, or well, so it may be, just that it feels good. Yeah, that's another explanation that's been proposed, that you, maybe it's just this byproduct thing, meaning because sexual intercourse feels good, so does masturbation. And as long as it doesn't affect your ability to reproduce, you know, you're still mating and producing offspring in addition to masturbating, then there's no real evolutionary reason to weed it out. As the lead author of this study explained to me, uh, Camilla Cheney from the University of Lethbridge, it's good, I'm doing it, why should I stop? <laughs> yeah. Um, it does make me think of, of Jane Goodall, you know, when she first found that chimps use tools and that was just such a massive discovery because it was the big thing that we thought only humans use tools and no other animals would do it. And one by one, we've seen all these other things that we think are uniquely human fall fall down. And uh, and now we're at sex toy use. Oh <laughs> I mean, where, where will it stop? <laughs> Let's take a quick break to tell you about New Scientist Live. Yes, it's the world's greatest festival of science and technology. It's a really fantastic event and it's returning to London this year on the 7th to 9th of October and you can also stream it online. And there are loads of great speakers and this week I want to flag up a talk by evolutionary biochemist Nick Lane. Uh, His work's always fascinating and at the show he's going to be talking about the deep chemistry of life and death. Yeah, that sounds really good. And one that caught my eye is It's Not Easy Being Green, which is going to be presented by Julia Cook and Joseph Araya at the Open University. They both advised on The Green Planet, that great Attenborough series that we enjoyed earlier this year. And they'll be talking about all the amazing things that plants do, but are often overlooked. Go to newscientist.com slash live to book tickets to this unmissable event. It's also podcast recommendation time. If you're interested in science and you're looking for another show, then we'd highly recommend checking out Trees A Crowd. It's hosted by actor, Woodland Trust and Wildlife Trust ambassador David Oakes. Trees A Crowd celebrates nature and the stories of those who care deeply for it. The podcast has recently relaunched for Series 4 and it kicked off with an hour-long interview with a guest we spoke to a few episodes ago, the environmental activist George Monbiot. Other guests have included entomologist and broadcaster Dr George McGavin, the Yorkshire shepherdess Amanda Owen, young environmentalist Dara McAnulty, and even one of today's upcoming guests, the sound artist Chris Watson. There's a whole archive of fascinating conversations to dig through, and there's even a special series exploring the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Search Trees A Crowd in your podcast player of choice, or check the show notes for a link. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, we're going to talk about missions to Mars now. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a few reasons. Uh, one is I've just finished the latest season of For All Mankind, which is such a great show. Um, it's an alternate history version of the space race where the Soviets get to the moon first, and that really drives a sustained investment in space exploration. But then we've also got these two big launches coming up. There's NASA's Artemis One, which is going to go around the moon. Uh, and then there's going to be the first orbital launch of uh, SpaceX's Starship, which, as we've said before, is the biggest rocket ever made. And that's the rocket that will eventually go to Mars. Um, I know you're very excited about this, Penny. I'm conflicted. You know, space exploration, it's wonderful. But I also don't think we can be trusted with other planets until we've shown we can look after our own. Well, as you know, one of the big issues about getting people to Mars is uh, the exposure that you're going to get to radiation during the flight out there and then and then once you're on the surface. And now some new simulations show that even with, uh, you know, metal shielding on the spacecraft, those levels of radiation would be higher than the safe limits currently set by space agencies. Yeah, so I know that there have been lots of issues around sort of previous studies looking at the radiation dosing that might happen in Mars and the effects that might have on on the body. Not least that a lot of these studies focus only on male bodies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the new simulations are much more comprehensive and they use virtual models of male and female bodies being bombarded with cosmic radiation and solar bursts. And they looked at the levels of radiation for more than 40 body parts and organs during a Mars mission, with 600 days spent in space and 400 on the Martian surface, with and without aluminium shielding in the spacecraft. And basically, many of the radiation levels for the organs were found to be above one sievert, which is the safe cumulative dose for an astronaut's career set by the European and Russian space agencies. Um, and for NASA, the total career dose shouldn't exceed 0.6 sieverts. Right. So essentially what you're saying, Rowan, is that going to Mars would be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, maybe even more dangerous than we thought. Uh, and this does add to what space agencies and, and SpaceX will need to prepare for. And the researchers on this paper looked at what we know about the effects of similar radiation doses in the real world. And they found that even with lower doses than what they're estimating, you can get memory problems and thyroid cancer and cardiovascular problems. So I'm guessing this means they need something better, a better way to shield spacecraft and, and also those habitations that some people want to build on Mars. Yeah, So and the agencies we spoke to are, are working on this. That's the sci-fi alert. And this week, Carmela, you've got this amazing story about quantum computer experts proposing to build something similar to a brain out of giant atoms. So there's so much to unpack there. Maybe we can start with uh, the building blocks for this new brain-like computer. So what do we actually mean by giant atoms? And why are those the kinds of things you'd want to use for this? 
Right. So if you imagine an atom, you're probably imagining electrons sort of flying around the nucleus. And the size of the atoms depends on how far away from the nucleus those electrons go. And to make these very large giant atoms, which are called Rydberg atoms, scientists give extra energy to the outermost electrons. So this makes the outermost electron get really far away from the nucleus and it kind of stretches out the whole atom. This electron is then also really susceptible to being manipulated with light. So if you're good at lasers, and physicists are, <laughs> you can assemble a system atom by atom and control each of their states just by using slightly different laser beams. When I read this story, I did start thinking about how big are they, these giant atoms? I mean, do they become visible to microscopes at least? Or like, you know, certainly electron microscope, I bet you could see them. Yeah, I mean, so the biggest ones will get into the micron range, but uh, wow. through sort of complications of how microscopes work, you can't actually look at them directly. You have to do uh, sort of like this shadow imaging type thing that we do for culture called atoms. Wow, uh, that's very cool. But how do you go about making a brain out of them? Right. So the brain part is really a matter of building a, a special kind of neural network with these giant atoms. A neural network is a type of AI that is structured to resemble the brain. So there's some artificial neurons and they have to talk to each other for the network to do computations and to learn. In this case, each atom would stand in for an artificial neuron and you'd nudge those neurons to do things by giving them a kick with laser light. Right. So it's very roughly something like machine learning, but the machine is made of of actual single atoms and it's quantum. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And in the paper I reported on, the researchers simulated this giant atom system on a regular computer, and they found they could be trained, like any neural network, to make decisions, to have memory, and even do some um, like very low-key multitasking. All the training and all the readout would happen with laser light. This would not be impressive if this was just like any neural network, but they showed that you could use just six giant atoms to make this atomic quantum neural network. And there are even some interactions between atoms that are so quantum that they have no counterpart in classical physics. And as it turns out, they could give the memory functions of this tiny neural network a performance boost. It is uh, quite a lot to get your head around. Um, really interesting, but it is just a proposal. You did report in your story that the researchers are interested in actually building this brain-like quantum computer. So what kind of thing can we expect from it if they manage that um, and make it physically in a lab? What what could it do? Right. So so this sort of intersection of, of machine learning and, and assembling quantum systems on demand with lasers is, is really exciting, in part because there hasn't been that much experimental exploration of, of what the quantum effects can really do. So one researcher I spoke to told me that scientists have long known that our brains are just so good at things like decision making or recognizing objects that we should imitate them to solve complex problems more or less whenever we can. But it's really with all this quantum stuff that you can reach new levels of complexity. The ultimate hope is that a quantum neural network could use quantumness to learn more and more complicated tasks than the classical one. But of course, they actually have to build it first, and you probably need more than six atoms. Great. So um, is there a sci-fi link here? Carmela, actually, you suggested one, didn't you? Yeah, so data from Star Trek, The Next Generation, uh, everyone knows, maybe, maybe everyone knows that he had a positronic brain, uh, which was not made of giant atoms, but it was an artificial neural network. Yeah, everyone does know. I think it's safe to assume everyone (laughs) knows that. 
Next up, we're going to hear some sounds of nature with sound artist Chris Watson. Yeah, Chris was a founder member of this legendary Sheffield band called Cabaret Voltaire, um, who incidentally, they were the first band I ever saw live. Um, yeah, Brixton Academy. Um, so it was a delight to chat with him. But for some time now, he's been traveling the world, recording sound from like all different ecosystems around the world. Um, and he's collaborated with the Manchester Collective on a performance of Michael Gordon's Weather, uh, and it's being performed in Manchester and London, and also in collaboration with the Spanish filmmaker Carlos Casas. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. So what's the first piece we're going to hear about from Iceland? I've made many recording trips to Iceland over the last 20-something years, and partic- I've been particularly interested in recording the soundscapes of some of the glaciers there, the largest of which is the Vatniokal Glacier, which starts almost in the middle of Iceland and flows down to the south coast to carve into the Norwegian Sea. And the air that's trapped in the ice is then re-released back into the atmosphere 10,000 years later. And the great thing about when the ice melts, it produces a lot of sound. It's a very sound-rich process. And so with my hydrophones, I could dip them into the Icelagood at Jokulsholm and hear this very music, these musical tones of this ancient air being re-released back into the environment. And I really like that idea of that cyclical journey that the air makes and, and the sound that's around it. Okay, let's hear a bit, um, a recording from the Namib Desert now. Would you like to introduce this for us? Well, it's one of the oldest deserts on the planet and and that's known by the scientific community by simply the diversity of of the beetles that have evolved there, which take millions of years to evolve. And and I've had the privilege of of going there on several film and sound recording trips and and spending time in in this place. And again, noticing that It's a beautiful but hostile environment. It's a place where we quite rightly fear to tread much of the time because we just wouldn't survive uh, during the day out there in temperatures of 45 degrees plus. And so I was interested in what happened to the desert over a period of time, uh, just a 24-hour cycle. So I made recordings at night when it's much more comfortable to go out at sunset and sunrise in that period. That's also when the animals are much more active. So I started by recording with hydrophones, again, using them as geophones under the, just under the summit of a dune as the wind, the winds that came off, come off the South Atlantic, tear across the surface of the dunes and carry the dunes with them. The dunes are, are quite mobile, not to our eyes, but over decades, the dunes shift. And again, I was interested in that fractional shift, which is best picked up by the, physicality of hearing the grains move before the sound is transformed into the sounds of what we regard much more commonly sounds of the natural world as the wildlife takes over after sunset.
And the next piece we're going to hear is, uh, again, something recorded with hydrophones. And this is off the coast of East Anglia. Well, tell us about that. There's still a system now of currents, the longshore drift, this current which passes down the coast and is eating away at the coast of East Anglia. And I had a commission a few years ago for the Britain Centenary, and I made lots of recordings along the coast of Suffolk and Norfolk, and I discovered what had happened to the medieval city of Dunwich, which was at one point in, I think, the 10th, 11th, 12th century, one of the largest ports in England. And it's now out to sea, the remnants of it, with the longshore drift eating away at the coast, and, and again, a process being accelerated by climate change. And what caught my attention there was the anecdotes of some of the local fishermen that granted boats, and they claim that they can always tell when the weather's going to change because they can hear the bells of Dun- cathedrals of Dunwich tolling in the deep, which I thought that was just perfect. Yeah. And so I began, and because I'm very interested in marine sounds, underwater sounds, I again use my hydrophones to record the passage of these currents, the longshore drift, which is very richly harmonic. It's this great piece of, of music, really, which strikes, I think, straight into our hearts and imaginations. And lastly, what would you like people to take away from this performance of, of weather? I think it's a great piece of theatre. It's a great, it's a powerful piece. The sounds of places that we all know are threatened. I'm very privileged and I get to go to record in these places. And I'm interested in bringing these places to people's attention and letting them speak for themselves. It's the most eloquent way. And I'm hoping that when people hear these habitats, they'll understand that these are places that we should really be aware of and, and taking more care to look after and not destroy. That was Chris Watson talking about some of his recordings and we'll put a link to the performance in our show notes. And that's it for this week. Uh, and I want to leave you with another sound. That is the sound of thousands of saiga antelopes um, in Kazakhstan on the steppe grasslands. I remember reporting years back about how they're being on the brink of extinction, but the population's rebounded. Uh, it's a great good news story, and I've put a link to, to our story on this rebound in the show notes. Thanks to our guests, and thanks to you for listening. Remember newscientist.com pod50 to get that bargain deal of 50% off a subscription to New Scientist. Yeah, uh, that link again, newscientist.com slash pod50. Do go and check it out. Uh, And that's it. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.